This is Healthcare's Missing Logic Podcast, episode number 98. This is a special episode. Today, we are blessed to have as our guest, Dr. Edgar Schein and his son, Peter Schein. Ed and Peter talk with us about the second edition of their book, Humble Inquiry, The Gentle Art of Asking Instead of Telling. You definitely don't want to miss this one. Hi, healthcare leaders. I'm Tracy Christofferson. And I'm Michelle Trosett. We're your hosts for Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast, and we are so grateful you joined us today. You're about to see healthcare problems and challenges through a brand new lens and take your leadership to a whole new level with this podcast. We've coached healthcare leaders from across North America for over 30 years as they strive to establish healthy healing organizations and thriving work cultures. This is the only podcast that shows healthcare leaders how to apply polarity thinking, the missing logic in healthcare, to their reoccurring challenges so they can stop wasting time, money, and resources on fixes that fail. If you want to create a healthy healing organization where staff and leaders thrive and perform at their highest level, where values are aligned, outcomes are sustainable, and the highest quality of care is delivered, then this podcast is for you. Keep listening. Each week, you're going to learn how to leverage a polarity mindset and manage competing priorities as we use a polarity lens to explore everyday challenges with the leaders who are striving to manage them. We're thrilled you're here. Hey, everyone. It is Michelle. And it is Tracy. And we're back again for another episode of Healthcare's Missing Logic Podcast. Yes, we are. And this one is full of dynamic duos. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. It's kind of been like the dynamic duo day, right? We finished one previously, yes. another dynamic duo. And wow. Just, yeah. you know, I think, uh, I feel like I've been going back to my roots. <laughs> it does feel like that. And, you know, it, it does. And it's informing our future. That's what's so exciting. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, we're kind of firm believers. Everything comes to you when you need it and when it's most helpful. And we've just been inundated with that kind of stuff. <laughs> and this interview was just, it was fun. It was informative. It was entertaining, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think it was too. And all in very simple language. Yeah. It, it was profound. Yeah. And it's, and it was, taking us back to our roots and where we got started. And it just was like, I'm so grateful that I learned some of these principles and skills all those years ago, because it certainly has shaped and informed my life. Not that I'm an expert at them, (laughs) but you know, I think I kind of think of the sliding doors, Michelle, where would we be if we wouldn't learn those things? (laughs) That's exactly right. I think of that often. So we have, Let's tell you who we interviewed. (laughs) (laughs) We won't keep in suspense any longer. How's that? So we interviewed Dr. Ed Shine and his son, Peter Shine. And so I'm going to introduce you to Ed. That's what he likes to be called. So Ed Shine is a professor emeritus of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Sloan School of Management. He is one of the original scholar practitioners in the fields of organizational psychology and organizational development, 
and he may be best known for his for first expanding our understanding of organizational culture. His books include Process Consultation, Organizational Culture and Leadership, Helping Humble Consulting and Humble Leadership. And they're translated and published worldwide. And his consulting and coaching has transformed leadership since 1970. His latest work, Humble Inquiry, the second edition, co-authored with his son, Peter, is also an international bestseller. Ed was educated at the University of Chicago, Stanford University, and he received his PhD in social psychology at Harvard University. What an incredible man. You're going wow. to love him. You're going to love him. Yeah, yeah. We don't have just anyone on our show. That's right. <laughs> Got the top-notch guru. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and his son, Peter, mm. is also awesome. He is the co-founder and COO of the Organizational Culture and Leadership Institute, which is OCLI.org on the net. And it uh, is in Menlo Park, California. And prior to his work there, Peter was strategy and corporate development executive at large and small technology companies in Silicon Valley. He is co-author with Ed of the Corporate Culture Survival Guide and Humble Leadership, the fifth edition of Organizational Culture and Leadership and the second edition, which we'll hear about today, of Humble Inquiry. Peter was educated at Stanford University and Northwestern University. And without further ado, here is the father-son duo. Well, welcome, Ed and Peter. We are so excited to have you on our podcast today. Very happy to be here. Good to be here. Awesome. Well, I don't know if you know this, but Tracy and I are referred to as the dynamic duo. And you two are a father-son duo. And so we want to know, what is the biggest gift you bring to your duo? <laughs> and you can answer for each other, or you can answer for yourself, whatever your preference is. Well, we've known each other for a long time. I think that helps. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, we're, we're, we know each other well enough to answer each other's, to finish each other's sentences. Um, Ed? I I just think that uh, it's a it's a whole new way of thinking to have someone to think with. Uh, it just enlarges and deepens and makes more enjoyable the whole process of thinking and writing. It's it's how that's how I experience it, uh, and um, it's a sort of a blessing to have a fourth career after uh, many other careers that I've had out here suddenly to find myself in a, a new and interesting and exciting career with Peter. Wow. That's awesome. And, That's and awesome. likewise for me, it's not fourth yet, but uh, you know, <laughs> second or third anyway. <laughs> You've got time, Peter. Yeah. You've got time. <laughs> yeah. I think there's one other thing that I would add too is, and that is that um, uh, father, son, and maybe eventually a granddaughter for Ed 
Um, it's very important to have the different generational perspectives. And I think we've learned that a lot, that, that if we're thinking about an idea, we will often go and sort of test it with my daughters and, um, you know, Ed's, uh, my sisters, Ed's, Ed's other two daughters. And so getting a lot of um, sort of uh, generational kind of cross-fertilization, I think, is very helpful. Um, yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's and a great point. Yeah, great point. it is. Different perspectives. And Tracy and I would agree. We say to each other all the time, aren't you glad we have each other? Because <laughs> we, we work with a lot of different coaches and consultants that they're solo. And we are so grateful for that thinking together, learning together, sharing ideas together. So there's a lot of positives of, of being a duo. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we're a walking polarity. So we yeah. are as Although we have a shared purpose and a lot of commonalities around our values and things, we are a walking player. We couldn't be more different in the way we think and how we do things. So it is a blessing and a challenge. (laughs) We learn a lot from each other and with each other. That's for sure. That is for sure. I I think there's a, there's, there's sort of future seeking wisdom in that. You know, we're struck by the fact that we keep hearing stories about um, a lot of, uh, sort of very modern engineering organizations are starting to do things in pairs um, yeah. because you know one plus one is more than two. That's and right. Figured that out. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Especially when of, they have opposite of, perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. Ahead of our time again, Tracy. <laughs> no. Yay! Us. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, Ed and Peter, just big congratulations on the second edition of your book, Humble Inquiry: The Gentle Art of Asking Instead of Telling. And uh, tell our listeners a little bit about the book and why you wrote the second edition in 2020, and why so many changes. Who wants to start? Well, I think we each have a point of view, and I. I like to start with what I think is sort of a new insight. I've been thinking about what have I learned over 60, 70 years of in this work, and uh, how does that come out in current writing? And it occurred to me that maybe the most important thing about that book Uh, As I now reflect on it, this might be a new idea for Peter as well, that I use the original, in the original title, the word inquiry, which is a relational concept. I didn't say curiosity. I said inquiry. Because I have come to believe that that the the humanization of, of the world is about relationships, not about individual traits or personalities or anything. It's all about relationships. And so rewriting or writing a second edition allows me to be much clearer about how important it is in the world of today to not only mention the word relationship, but to build on what Peter and I have evolved, this concept of levels of relationship, and particularly that what's wrong with today's world, which humble inquiry tries to fix, is the limitations of our transactional, 
impersonal kind of relationship and the need to get to something that is more personalized, more intimate uh, and humble inquiry, the book and the concept is a vehicle into that. That's for me the really, really important reason why I wanted to redo this book. And then from my perspective, uh, it was uh, my joining to help write the new the new edition. So it it was a it was a contribution that I had wanted to make. Part of it was um, that I wanted to modernize the stories a little bit. So we did kind of we we did sort of reassess the the you know all of these books are are punctuated and 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 structured around stories. And so uh, I had some stories that I wanted to add to it because the first edition has resonated so much that, um, you know, so lucky me, I got to sort of throw in some of my stories as well. And, um, and then the other thing I think that we wanted to do is um, oftentimes with some of the work that we've done it's we've gotten yeah but i want the i want the program i want the steps i want the um and you know part of us sort of resist that you know let let some of these ideas kind of seep in and then you'll you'll learn them when you when you develop your own steps at the same time we wanted to put some kind of a little bit more hands on how could i actually start getting to work trying some of this so uh, we want to take one step further in uh, providing an exercises, literally exercises that you can do to, to, to again, it, it, it's what you learn is going to be what you bring to it. Mm-hmm. We're not, there's no right answers, but the exercises were an important addition, I think, in this, in the second edition. Yeah. Yeah, one, I would, I would agree add is that uh, in the original version, the argument for why humble inquiry of someone says, why do I need that? We had basically two reasons that it's a way of building a relationship and it's a key process to trying to be helpful. Mm-hmm. If you're a friend or a consultant or whatever, you've got to build that relationship. But Peter and circumstances brought a third element to why humble inquiry that may turn out to be by far the most important and that is we have to inquire of nature and situations what is going on the world has become so confusing so mixed up in terms of what's factual and what isn't what is truth that we now realize as we were writing the book, and this was an idea that Peter brought with him totally, it never occurred to me, is how are you going to find out what's going on if you don't humbly inquire? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's so key because we don't know. We, we don't know what other people are thinking, what their perspectives are, and uh, we, love the, we love just the, the word humble inquiry like you're coming at it from a very um intentional place to understand which then we know dialogue it's a key dialogue skill that's it it makes the assumption that everyone has wisdom that we can learn from it's really powerful 
Great addition, yeah. Peter. Yes. Yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, between the first edition and the second edition, we were all introduced to the idea of alternative facts. Yeah. And um, some, you know, are some somehow encircling facts and alternative facts is what's actually going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that that, you know, are we giving enough time to try to figure out and inquire about what's actually going on? Because mm-hmm. we'll get lots of answers, mm-hmm. but we we really need that that deeper level of of inquiry and subsequent relationship building to understand what's really going on. Yeah, powerful. So you describe humble inquiry as an attitude and a process. So can you please dig a little deeper into that for our listeners? Well, the the general point about attitude is that, again, it's if you're going to build a relationship with someone or even with a situation, even with nature, (laughs) uh, there are not necessarily discrete steps. It's rather that you want to find out something that you're ignorant of. And how you do that can be very situationally different. Uh, And therefore, how the how depends on the purpose and the attitude of wanting to do it. And so that that leads then to sort of a, a way of analyzing the different aspects of the how. And Peter came up with a notion of how to do that, and I'm going to let him talk about it. Uh, yeah, it was sort of a, a little bit of a playful mnemonic that we we were we were experimenting with. So, so we'll try it with with you guys. Um, wh- the first thing is it starts with motivation, um, and and that that sort of that motivation is starts with you you actually care. Um, you know, if you don't actually care what's happening with the other person, what's going on, then, you know, you're, you're, you know, it's not sure that it's not clear that humble inquiry is really for you. (laughs) Um, and, uh, and then you're also curious to learn more. So there's always that kind of that, that iteration of caring and curiosity. Um, as Ed likes to point out, it really is, fundamentally starts with asking questions that you don't know the answer to because it's very easy to start asking questions that that aren't really about caring and curiosity they're about validating what you already know Mm -hmm. Um, well our our sense is the motivation goes deeper than validating what you already know Um, then the next idea as part of the attitude is that you you are intervening one of Ed's most famous quotes is everything is an intervention. So you are not just asking a question, you are intervening in somebody's life. <laughs> you're intervening in their thought, you're intervening in their work, in their process. Um, and knowing that, that's why you decide that it's, it's better to ask than to tell. The, you know, the, 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 the subtitle of the book is the, the, the gentle art of asking instead of telling. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and you know one of the the, the story one the, the initial story that's in the both editions is about an experience that Ed had where he was just full on told he was not asked and it really set this this bit for Ed that that's fundamentally a problem in the way people communicate and so you recognize that you are intervening and the better way to do that to draw somebody out is to ask instead of telling. Um, and then there's a, the next step in that attitude is recognizing that there's a difference between sort of, yeah, 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 and deep listening, right? You know, I'm, I'm gesturing with my, ha my, my hand sort of, yeah, 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 okay, go on, go on, go on. That's not deep listening. Deep listening is 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 something different than than just sort of that 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 sort of, um, almost that mocking of drawing somebody out. Um, keep your hands down while you're listening to somebody. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Um, and then the last thing is that is contribution. So we we had motivation, we had intervention, and we have contribution. That you're not going to invest this much you're not going to engage this much if you don't want to help the other person if you don't want to contribute something to them and and that's that's has two sides to it one is that general attitude of empathy not that different than you've already established that you care what's going on with the other person but you learn how to sort of to actually genuinely feel some empathy. Um, and this is one where some people don't have that. And, um, and it may be very hard to train it, mm -hmm. but um, it's important. We're not the first people to say that empathy is important. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then the other key part of contribution is that you're, you end up revealing something deep about yourself that the other person didn't know because that process of inquiring and revealing is really what um, constitutes relationship building so um so going back again motivation intervention and contribution and so the the forgive us but the word play is that that spells mike and what you're really trying to do is share the mic. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> I like was, it. Uh, I do too. I'm on my hands on a Sunday or something. <laughs> <laughs> this would be something that would come to me in the shower, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where your mind is free. Yeah. That's exactly. Right. Exactly. That's right. It just kind of flows to you, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. I think that's perfect. Yeah, I do too. I was going to say drop the mic. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> but that one's already taken. <laughs> oh, oh, that's just, you know, I just keep thinking about those principles of dialogue and the things yeah. that we learned so many years ago in our, you know, journey um, as yeah. leaders and really learning about what it takes to create um, deep relationships and have meaningful conversation these are all elements of that as well so we're really resonating um, yeah message. totally totally including the first time i went to a workshop to learn some of these skills i had a flashback from that morning 
yelling at my husband running through the house, keep talking to me. I'm looking for the keys. Keep talking to me. And I remember learning about deep listening and like, oh my gosh, I've got a lot to learn. <laughs> Well, that's a skill we can all continue to, right, to hone and learn. And yeah, it's uh, it's a journey, that's for sure. Yeah. And the thing is, I think what has always struck me about relationships are all there is and meaningful conversations like this, humble inquiry, right, just really engaging and learning is we're not taught this stuff. Like I didn't grow up with this in my home, right? I didn't grow up with this in my school. Right. So I think this is just so important. And maybe, you know, some of the reason we have set the situations that we have is because we don't have these skills or we don't recognize what we need to shift. Right. And um, so this is just so, so important. It's also critical. Mm -hmm. I, I have to intervene here and, and point out that what I hope is a huge contribution, which will eventually catch on, is that instead of talking about deep relationships, we talk about levels of relationships. Mm -hmm. Because deep, shallow is not a very good uh, measurement tool or map. Whereas levels of from minus one to plus three, which we have articulated in each of our books now, so we're hoping slowly this will catch on, where level minus one is when someone simply dominates you. And that's why we call it a minus one relationship. And we, we have those, but we don't particularly advocate them. The, the problem is the world has gotten stuck on level one, which is the standard transactional relationship, which worked perfectly for a linear machine world which we have been living in now for a hundred years or so, but are beginning to realize that that linear model of everything is a transaction. Uh, it's just a matter of, you know, making the right deal, uh, that that is no longer working. That that is in fact inhuman because I'm treating you in a transaction as the interviewer not you by a person or a name. And so we have introduced level two as the, the key to the future, level two being a personized relationship where I go past your role and try to figure out something about you as a person. And that's, of course, why I need humble inquiry. I have to ask you a a personal question to which I don't know the answer. Where are you from? You know, I don't know. But if I'm going to get to know you, I might need to know that. Or I might uh, say, what's your favorite food? We have to personize in order to relate. And the argument now is we do that with friends and relatives and to, with them, we even get to level three, which we'll talk about in a minute. But the point about level two is for some reason, we have legislated that as being out of order at the workplace. We have created a management system where the boss maintains professional distance, keeps everything at level one. You stay in your job description role. 
you don't come around and bother me with all your personal issues. And of course, that leads to you also then don't bother the boss with telling him what's wrong in the latest decision he or she made. <laughs> Scandals and messed up organizations because the boss and the direct reports never learned level two communication. There was no incentive for the direct report to be open and truthful and helpful. And it's the bosses of the world that have created that. And I think we're still heavily in that kind of a world. Management is still bossism and it's still level one stuff. And our point of view is if we don't get through that and start having level two organizations, we're gonna continue to fail. Mm -hmm. I would agree. I and, would too. <laughs> and uh, just to sort of fill in the level, the, the, the top level, level three, um, is the one in a way that's sort of um, most interesting in in the sense that it's an intimacy that you know Ed and I might have because we're you know we're we're directly related to each other, or I have with my wife. Um, but then the question is, are is that level of intimacy ever appropriate in the workforce? And every time we've talked to people about this, including you know high tech companies or the military. They say absolutely, but you have to be careful with it. You know, like so, so a you know a high performance team in the military, you know, special forces or or you know SEAL teams, they are level three. They really know each other, and they train you know what twelve hours a day together. Um, now, because the expectations of their being able to trust each other with their lives, with the ultimate. Um, you know, thing to trust somebody with. It, it, it's not surprising that they would develop that level of intimacy. Um, what's been interesting is when we talk to a lot of companies, they say, well, we, we actually think that we're sort of at level 2.5, that it's more than just kind of, we know, we know the people we work with in 360 degrees we are actually really close to some people and we can finish each other's sentences. We're tightly, you know, aligned. Um, and uh, so, so it's, it's what's been really interesting as we've been talking to people in the last, you know, sort of four years about this is how often we find people are sort of attracted to level three as actually, yeah, I get the level two. But we actually think to really be a high-performing team, we need to be more like level three. Um, so that that's that's we like that. That means people are sort of getting it. Mm -hmm. um, I had a uh, a, a general, uh, like a two or three-star general at a conference, um, come up to me after I presented that and say, you know, we go from level minus one to level four, and I was like, oh. Yeah, we don't really have a level four in our model. And I'm thinking, wow, that that does mean a level of, of an intensely close relationship 
um, in, you know, in a line of work that's, that's characterized by life and death. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So in the medical field, are we going to find that, that the, the highest performing teams in the most intense procedures have a level of intimacy that, that goes above, above and beyond any level two that Ed and I talked about as being important? Yeah. Hey, it's Michelle, and we're going to get right back to this episode, but I had to interrupt really quick and let you know the doors to our new self-study program, Caring for Others Without Neglecting You, is open for enrollment. We know, especially right now, with everything your team has been through this past year, that you want to do all you can to support them, help them to recover and be resilient, and even experience joy in their work again, and they need your support. If you are like most healthcare leaders we talk to, you may have been overwhelmed, exhausted, and stressed before the pandemic, and things aren't getting any better. They're getting worse. So it's easy to see that if you don't prioritize caring for you, you won't have anything left to give to your team. So stop neglecting you and go over to missinglogic.com forward slash new dash events to learn more and enroll today. Well, you know, with the, with the whole COVID experience, there have been phenomenal stories coming out of people discovering how they can be much closer together and the love and respect of interprofessional teams has really been amazing. Mm-hmm. The question always comes, though, why can't we be like that all the time? And why can't we sustain that? And then I think that, you know, Tracy and I, we, we bring that back around to it's the principles of dialogue, healthy relationships, understanding polarities, which where we're going to go next. It's, it's, but they have to be there and people have to know how to use things like humble inquiry, right, to mm-hmm. have it be the norm. Well, I think they're always, you know, I think as healthcare clinicians, I would say we're always great in a crisis. When there's a crisis, boom, we're a team, right? And it's like clockwork the majority of the time, I would say. There are times where some just, (laughs) no. Uh, But for the most part, that's never been a problem because I think some of these other things get peeled away and you get right down to what has to happen, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, it's kind of like life or death in those a lot of those times. It is life or death. Right. And so you are on it. It's not your life or death. It's somebody else's usually. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's that's the difference. And then I was thinking about, you know, that other level is really that transformational relationship. Right. Where the two individuals totally transform because of that intimacy, because of that level of understanding and reliance and trust, which I think is a huge part of that, right? Trust is such a huge Mm -hmm. part of the foundation of any relationship. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And those individuals, those Navy SEALs, that that's it. They, they, they have to have that depth of trust. So they have to know each other Mm -hmm. in those ways. Right. So that makes makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, as you know, we work with healthcare organizations and healthcare leaders, and we're kind of focused on bringing the concept of polarity intelligence um, to healthcare and to leaders as a competency, not just not just a theory, not just something you know and you're aware of, but something you actually apply in your day-to-day work and in how you see things and how you relate to other people, because polarities are all about differing perspectives, right? They appear to be opposite or different. Um, but they're actually interdependent and need each other over time to achieve any greater purpose you might be after. And um, 
And a part of that is being able to engage in dialogue. And I would say humble inquiry, right? Mm -hmm. Really wanting to know somebody else's perspective um, and, and somebody else's fears, because oftentimes there's fear underneath our uh, inability to relate or our inability to communicate, right? We hold back or there's usually fear is always somewhere in there. <laughs> um, or often, maybe not always, but often. Um, and so it applies this kind of, we want them to be unconsciously competent, right? In, in being able to apply that. Mm-hmm. And you talk about polarities in the very introduction, very beginning of the book. And I think you refer to the certainty and clarity polarity, which I think you became aware of through Bob Johansson. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. 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 From the Institute for the Future. Yeah. Yeah. And so can you tell our listeners a little bit about that polarity and how humble inquiry really helps achieve that, you know, that greater purpose? Yeah. I mean, I think that, that if we think about the, that, just that, those two words, the, the idea that um, you, you are certain of something and you, you're there to convince the other people that you work with that, uh, of that certainty. That, that sort of creates a frame around your own perception and your own openness. Mm-hmm. Um, because if anything challenges that certainty, your 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 defenses are up the difference is with clarity is that you may still be fairly certain but you are open to other things that are going on around you um you're not so convinced you're not so certain of what you know that you won't be open to to what's going on Clarity is ref, reflects the idea that um, you know you you don't have to compromise belief, but you have to see everything else that might challenge that belief. Then you can at least be clear of what's going on, of what's actually happening. Yeah. So um, uh, yeah. So that's that that's the general notion from from Bob Johansson about leaders of the future need to bias to clarity and away from certainty. We absolutely buy into that. And it's because of that belief in, you know, that getting to that, yeah, but what's really going on? Um, Uh, I would like to add to that a a different dimension, which may also is another polarity. And that is that uh, a lot of the culture stuff worldwide differentiates cultures as well as individuals on tolerance for ambiguity. It's a very important dimension in culture research. Some countries' ideologies are more tolerant of ambiguity than others. The need, the need for certainty is another way to put it. And I think the, the problem with certainty is that we automatically put it at that high end of low tolerance for ambiguity. When we're certain, we don't want to be looking at alternatives. If we think of it as a dimension of some people have a high tolerance and some systems or countries or cultures 
have a high tolerance for ambiguity, that's consistent with clarity because clarity will tell you all the nuances that are operating. Clarity will not tell you it's A, B. It'll, clarity will tell you it's A, maybe B, and there's a certain amount of C. And this is where the futurism comes in. Maybe in past times, clarity was A or B. But today, clarity is we don't know exactly what's going on. So to be clear, we have to do a lot of inquiring. And we have to have a lot of tolerance for ambiguity and be able to say that the clear picture right now <clears throat> is actually a very muddy, chaotic one. But that's reality and that's what we have to live with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think what I was appreciating about this too is this is what I love about polarities and about mapping out polarities because when you think about it, everybody has perspectives, right? And when you have an interdependent pair of perspectives, there's that level of certainty, right? For each, each, let's just say individual at this point, right? That's hanging on to that perspective as being certain. And what I love about polarities and, and first is understanding these things are connected. This isn't separate, right? And that you can use that, um, that clarity, right? to inquire, to really reveal what is being experienced. Why are we where we're at with this, right? And, and that's what I love about it because it, it, it combines all of this and it helps you to see. And I'm just kind of thinking, we talk about mother polarities that kind of are overarching and I'm kind of seeing this certainty and clarity as an overarching yeah. polarity, right? That influences how we uncover the realities and how we uncover the relationships within our realities. And um, so I was, I was just really resonating with that. Mm -hmm. um, I'd want to add to maybe what, when we talk about transactional and personal, <clears throat> maybe there we're talking about a polarity. Yeah, well. you are. You, yep. Because at least in that we're accepting that if you trend, if you, if you move from, from transactional to personal, you're now, allowing that relationship to have ambiguity you're right you're inviting yeah. the other person to change the condition yeah yeah and um that's obviously where we bring in humility that um it, it uh, allowing somebody to change you is is what humility is yeah mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. Uh, it's it's transactional, personal. I mean, the other one that comes up in our humble leadership book is is transparency and openness. And the reason I bring it up is that so often these things, these two things, are are conflated, or they're they're considered the same thing. I don't, we don't consider them at all the same thing, because transparency is often a rule. It's often a requirement. It's often an API, right? You're, you're, this, this is information that you're required to share. Openness is information that, that gets shared because you're open. And it's not bounded by the, the whatever the, the rules of transparency required. It, it, it's at a, mm -hmm. operates at a much deeper level. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, as we describe transparency, it's answers to the questions you ask. Openness is answers to the questions you didn't ask or didn't know to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another one where we're trying to describe what's the difference between trans, uh, transactional and personal. The analog is the difference between transparency and openness. And we're always saying that openness is what you really should strive for to say, we're going to be, as a company, we're going to be transparent. Well, yeah, yeah, that's right. The SEC may require that you be transparent. Right. We're looking for something more. We, we think there's, there's more to it than just agreeing to share that information. Because, well, that openness is associated with a level of vulnerability, right? Of course, because yeah. you don't know, and you have to accept that you don't know. Right. And, and somebody else does. And you'll all benefit if that gets shared. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I think back to the, the, the transactional and the personal, you know, I, well, it, it is a polarity because not every relationship, every engagement we have to be has to be at that deeper personal level. Some are meant to be transactional. If they were personal, we'd never get anything done. right? Like if we were doing that, you know, we might not achieve the things we need to achieve where we just need the transaction. So both are necessary. It's just when, and when's it most appropriate and to what, and with who. Right. Right. And thank you for bringing that up because we often ask that question. If if everything has to be level two, how can this possibly scale across a, you know, a 10,000 person organization? Well, it's it's always a, it's related to the task at hand. Yep. And um, certain tasks are are going to be just fine operating at level one transactional. Yep. But um, any time that we're talking about creating change and addressing challenges um, and you know sort of confronting you know VUCA, we use the VUCA term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We think that's where level two is sort of the the, the the emerging requirement. Mm-hmm. I, I want to give a medical example to illustrate that this can also be very simple. If you think of it as an attitude, I, I have been thinking a lot about how medicine has become very time conscious. Everything is 10 minutes here, 20 minutes there, meetings that back up to each other. The doctor's only allowed 10 minutes with the patient. So my fantasy is the level one doctor comes in and says, we've only got 10 minutes. Let's go through the chart. Uh, What are your symptoms today? Where are you hurting? Blah, 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 blah. The level two doctor arrives with a big smile and says to the patient, good morning. You know, we're both stuck with the new system in which we only have 10 minutes. So let's make the best of it and let's see what's what's really important. That would be an immediate personizing of the same 10-minute block. And I think very much you, you can do the same thing in, in any transactional relationship. Mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. At the checkout line, and say, where are you from? You know, I've seen you in this line before. And it immediately shifts the relationship. And that clerk becomes more human and might smile 
and give you the answer and say, gee, somebody noticed me. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you don't want to make humble inquiry into a big, fancy, complicated, professional thing. It's that caring and knowing that any intervention, saying, I like your hairdo today, those are level two kinds of comments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're honest. You can't fake it. If it's just done to inveigle yourself into a relationship, to, to be seductive when, when you have a, uh, additional irrelevant goals, I think people see through that and it doesn't work. But honest questions like that or honest observations or honest revelations uh, can be immediately transformative of a transactional into a personal relationship. That's a great point. Yeah, that is a great point. It's a great example too, Ed. Thank you for sharing that. Many people that are listening to this will be able to relate to that message. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Mm -hmm, for sure. Well, there was another polarity, kind of a common polarity in your um, to your primary goal of exposing and encouraging humble inquiry, and that was the competition and collaboration. And you kind of connected, I think, the competition and telling and the collaboration and humble inquiry. So we could probably even say it's like a yang telling and a, and a yin humble inquiry. But tell us a little bit more about that. So are, are we really, is what we're really saying is we've been in the downside of the telling in our society and in our organizations? Is that what we're, we're saying? We've overemphasized that to the neglect of this humble inquiry and engagement? Well, I, I think the chapter in the book that is called A Culture of Tell, which is based on our observation of what the U.S. culture contains. It's not all of the culture, but it contains a huge uh, rugged individualism component. And rugged individualism means you already know, you've conquered the frontier, you, you are the boss, you have climbed to the top of the mountain, so you get to tell people. And I think most people in listen to ads and watch sort of the, the cultural icons, they see that having knowledge, not needing help, telling others what to do is really the way to be a successful adult in the U.S. And I think it's a, a terrible problem because it doesn't work. If it worked, fine. And it worked for maybe 50 years, but it's working less and less because you make mistakes. You don't know enough. You're not humble enough. You don't ask. And so you tell people what to do and they make mistakes or they take advantage of you. And then you wonder what happened. What happened is you started out with the wrong concept of how to get along in a complex VUCA world. In a complex VUCA world, uh, the only way to get along is through finding out what's going on uh, before you tell anybody anything. And so that shifts the, the requirements. This is, this is not a moral philosophy. This is a pragmatic 
philosophy. If you want to get along in today's world, you're going to have to become a humble inquirer. Yeah, I guess the only thing I would add to that is that um, we've said in a couple of our books that that it's it's quoting Frederick Lalu, the reinventing organizations scholar, um, that there's there is something in the air that we're not alone in talking about the the sort of the we're leaving behind that myth of of the organizational hierarchy of the um sort of heroic boss the heroic leader we are kind of leaving behind that myth in quite intentionally and saying that um that it's a more collaborative approach to leadership that's going to be more successful and it's and only really on this simple logic that leadership is is making and guiding decisions and to make and guide decisions in the best way possible, um, don't you need to most effectively draw information out of the people that you're working with? Yeah. Um, and not in a in a in a command and control sense, but in a collaboration and sharing sense. We need to know what every what each of us knows. And then the, the leader's role is to kind of you know, get that that unenviable task of having to sort of sort out what's most pertinent and what must most relevant at that moment in order to make make the right decision. But um, why try to make the right decision um, without doing everything you can to collect all bits of information that may be helpful in in guiding that decision? Right. And the good news is we have lots of information technology that'll help us assimilate all sorts of information. Um, so we, we shouldn't look to limit that information in order to make the right decisions. Um, so that's in a way that's it's, it's assuming that it's not a zero sum competitive game, that it is a, you know, it's a matter of growing and innovating and doing that on the basis of collecting more information rather than telling other people what you know. Mm -hmm. Thanks for explaining that. Um, and just for our listeners, I just want to share that the acronym that both you and Ed use, VUCA, is for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, which is the world we're living in today. So I just yes. wanted to <laughs> yeah, thanks. share that. Mm -hmm. Well, it's exciting to hear that some of the leadership models are changing. <laughs> uh, really is. Well, yeah. we we hope so. We 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 know there's something in the air. <laughs> <laughs> and I it's good. honestly I think that the uh, our our just our our transition in presidents mm -hmm. has a has clearly a different vibe, mm -hmm. clearly a different feeling in the air. Mm -hmm. Yep. It may it may change back, but um, it's 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 important to recognize that feeling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, and you can see all the elements of the culture in what happened with COVID, where you you mentioned, and we all saw incredible examples of teamwork and level two relationships. 
We also have seen incredible examples of cheating, of organizations uh, bidding for using money to get more of, of, the, of the vaccine, of uh, uh, creating uh, individualistic uh, routes that, that violated the collectivist rules. So you could see all the elements of the U.S. culture in what went on in this last year. Mm -hmm. So yes, the, the world is changing, but let's not kid ourselves that the competitive side of that polarity is very, very powerful in the U.S. culture. We're, we're not about to become lovey-dovey collaborators voluntarily. We're going to be driven to it by the needs of the task. Mm -hmm. because deep down, we still believe in that rugged individual who doesn't need help, who can do everything for herself, and so on. Yeah, lots, lots to learn. Lots to learn. You know, it's kind of like, here's the mirror. <laughs> lots to learn. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> well, you encourage your readers to relearn how to inquire, listen, reflect, and act. And you also call out how this particular, uh, particularly important, it, this is for leaders today. Um, so tell our listeners why leaders will be more successful if they apply humble inquiry in their daily practice. They'll have more data. They'll know what's going on particularly what's going on below them. Because the biggest danger to a leader is the assumption that when they've told their organization how to do things, that that's what's actually going on. Uh, this comes really from the safety area. It's very much an issue with patient safety. How, how many leaders of hospitals recognize that the most powerful information about the safety of the patient may be in the cleaning crew. That they see stuff every day going on in that hospital, in the pharmacy, in the transition from ward to ward that are unsafe and that will sooner or later cause a problem or a scandal. And how many people at that level even have an idea that they ought to set up an environment in which they regularly talk to everyone in all these nooks and crannies of their organization. And if they don't, they're vulnerable and don't realize it until it's too late. Somebody switched the medicine and some flunky sweeping the floor saw it happen, but had no incentive to tell anybody, and a patient died. Uh, that's the extreme example, but I think that happens at, at every level in a clinic or a hospital, and the leaders of those clinics and hospitals uh, will be vulnerable to the extent that they fail to create level two open trusting relationships right down the line. 
And it's a, it's a hard ask to ask a leader to embrace their vulnerability, but you know, we're not the only ones asking leaders to do that. It's, mm -hmm. it's, <laughs> um, and, and sometimes maybe the best, the best examples are where it's, it's forced on a leader. There's just no, no choice, but to accept that vulnerability. Um, it wasn't your fault. You had to accept that vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I just, you guys are taking me down memory lane. <laughs> I know. We we did a lot of this work in the organizations for many, many years, right? All of these things, helping them to establish these environments and be vulnerable and establish these levels of relationship. And it's just, it's just so important. It's just, you know. Yeah. And put in uh, partnership infrastructures where an environmental service leader and uh, or provider and a clinician were partners, on a unit council or department yeah. council. To your point, it takes all of us. Yeah. Well, the biggest point that people miss is they say, yeah, but it doesn't scale very well. Yeah. In a very tall organization. The answer to that is it won't scale if you try to start it in the middle or at the bottom. But supposing you said to the board of the hospital, this hospital is vulnerable and unsafe unless you get to know your chief of medicine and your CEO and you, you deal with them at level two. Mm -hmm. You don't keep them at arm's length. In this famous case in, in our uh, leadership book, uh, where the CEO of the Virginia Mason Hospital wanted to be sure that, that they really got into the Toyota production system, he makes it a rule to take at least 10 members of his board to Japan every year. Mm -hmm. That. That's saying, you know, we got us, my board members have to understand what we're doing here. I, I can't just be telling them at a board meeting. So the scaling works down. It does probably not work very well up if somebody says, yeah, this is good and waves a flag. And the personnel department is supposed to start a training program. But my chief of medicine doesn't need to go because uh, she, she's got other things to do. That's a fatal flaw. Yeah, I would agree. A at the same time, there have been some interesting examples where, um, uh, you know, one group outperformed another and they had, they went, tried to figure out, I'm talking about Google and their, their project mm -hmm. Aristotle. Um, and you know this this epiphany that the thing that really distinguished the successful teams were the ones where they could you know palpably describe psychological safety within the teams. In other words, everybody was um, open and vulnerable to what other people knew and could share that information. That's what that's I think that's what they meant by psychological safety. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and what's so interesting about something like that coming out of Google is that, you know, that that is a company that's very capable of studying things at very minute and well instrumented levels. They, they've got 
metrics teams all over the place. They they absolutely know what they're doing. There there's there's nothing that is that is sort of left to chance in that organization, unless it's intentionally left to chance, which I think they do as well. But um, what what they what sort of they expected was there was going to be something in the system that would show up as as driving more success not something that was just sort of a human attribute um, of some of the more successful teams than others um, so it, it's uh you know th this notion that um to ed's point it really needs to start at the top but the organization can also learn by pockets of success and that shouldn't be overlooked either um, no. that's true right right wow <laughs> so um i'm sitting here thinking can we just come hang out with you guys for a while? <laughs> I could do this all day. <laughs> I could too. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your experience, your wisdom, um, just a lot of alignment with the work that we've been doing in healthcare. And it crosses all industries, all families, all cultures. So it's really exciting to be with two people that can really articulate it so well. And so I just really want to thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you so much for having us. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's fun for us to articulate. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a blessing, right? When you can spend your time doing something that is fun and that you enjoy and you enjoy talking about it, you're on the right track, right? Doing the right things. So I have one more polarity for you. Oh, oh, and um, and it comes from sort of what what's what's currently the the quote that keeps coming to mind um, for me. It's from T. S. Eliot and a an obscure play that he wrote, but he's he's describing um, humans trying trying to deal with challenge, and um, he's, he says by dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will need to be good. And so the polarity is perfect and good because, or maybe system and good. But the, the point being that a lot of what we're talking about is um, that, you know, compulsion that organizations have to create systems for safety, for improvement, for innovation, um, and to make them so perfect that the humans at work won't really need to be good. And by good, I, I interpret that as good to each other, mm -hmm. right? They won't need to build relationships to make their organization more resilient because the system they designed was so perfect. Um, that to me is where there what what's something in the air is that we're figuring out that it's not just about creating these perfect systems. Yeah. It's about people starting to realize that they actually have to be good to each other mm -hmm. at work. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. It's a that would fall under a, a mother polarity of sorts of productivity and relationships. Mm -hmm. And you need both. And as we increase our automation and all of our systems, 
and really what your work is bringing, what we're so passionate about is you can't drop the relationship side. It, 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 we're doomed for failure. It's, you can't do it. Well, I mean, or we can just be replaced by AIs. Yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think in your example, I think that's individual and system. Yeah. And, you know, that's mm -hmm. kind of what the polarity an, is. And we're actually doing another podcast on that. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but yeah, that's what it is. That's what it is. So awesome. Well, right. what a great, great interview time with you. Thank you again. Is there any other last comments you want to make before we wrap up? No, it's I. It's been a great conversation, and I love I love the polarities focus. That's such a good way of 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 people learning. Yeah. Well, I'm happy with what we've talked about. Okay. <laughs> All right. Is it a three, a four, a five? What is it, Ed? <laughs> ten. Goes to our, ten. Goes up to ten. eleven. We got a ten. <laughs> Thanks again. And for our listeners, you know, this concludes another awesome episode of Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast. And we will see you next time. Everybody stay safe and healthy. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thank you. Thanks as always for listening to Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast. You can find show notes and links at our website, missinglogic.com forward slash new dash podcast. If you're the kind of leader who wants to help others, then share this podcast with your peers and other healthcare leaders. We're certain if you found value in it, they will too. Please share this on your social media channels and leave us a review in iTunes. If you don't know how to leave a review, you can find instructions at the end of the show notes. We'd also love to hear and answer your questions. So if you have some questions, you can email us at questions at missinglogic.com. And we may include your question in a future episode.